welcome to dollars and cents with a couple of gents making money moves with the finest of gents come and pull up a seat cause we're proud to present how to make some good decisions when you're on the fence rob and steve gonna tell you how to do it the best Hello everybody, welcome back to Dollars and Cents with a couple of gents. I'm one of the gents, I'm Robert Wolfson. And I'm Stephen Ellis. We're really grateful that you joined us once again today. We actually have a great podcast lined up today. We have a special guest joining us for the first time. Yeah, first time having a guest speaker and we're really excited. We have Andy Nasser, who's the Chief Investment Officer here at Scotia Wealth Management, joining us. Yeah, lots going on in the world and the markets. It was a great month of August, but we thought it was time for an update from our portfolio advisor group and our chief investment strategist uh, with what's happening out there economically and, and things that are moving different sectors of the market. Yeah, that's right. So just to give you a bit of a background on Andy, uh, he's been in the investment industry for over 20 years. Uh, prior to joining Scotia Wealth Management, he was a, an award-winning senior portfolio manager that was responsible for managing several global and domestic mandates. So it goes without saying that he's got a depth of experience in the industry. Yeah, I've known Andy for about 15 years, actually, Steve. I used to invest with him when he worked both at Century uh, Funds and also with the Middlefield Group, a great portfolio manager, lots of insight, depth of knowledge. He's worked both on the fund management side and also on the strategy side in both those firms as well. You can actually catch Andy Lotz as a guest on BNN and Bloomberg as well. So without further ado, uh, let's welcome Andy to the podcast. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, as you know, Andy, you are our first guest on the podcast, so we've decided to make you an honorary gent. All right. Awesome. So <laughs> I, I know that's very exciting for you. It is. So, Andy, we'll let you get into your presentation. I know you've got some thoughts to share with the listeners. Sure. So, I think... Um, you know, I think the some of the questions that we get asked most often is, you know, what's happening with the economy and why is it why does it look so different when we look at financial markets because they seem to be shrugging off a lot of economic malaise and bad news. And you know, there's no question that this pandemic spread rapidly, plunged the global economy into recession, and it affected the supply of uh, goods and services. That the impact of the pandemic is still very evident. Um, economic data remains lackluster. And to some extent, this huge rebound that we've seen in financial markets after a disaster first quarter of 2020 has really been uh, what we'd characterize as a combination of stimulus, as well as the fiscal and monetary stimulus to lessen the impact of the outbreak and bolster growth once it's contained, and quite frankly, hope. Um, hope that you know this is going to be a rearview mirror event as the remainder of the year progresses, uh, and you know likely in 2021. Um, so during the remainder of this year, you know, it's our anticipation that uh, we're probably still going to have some volatility, and the trajectory of uh, capital flows and the performance of financial markets is going to remain dependent on that stimulus, so that support, easy financial conditions. Uh, and hopefully the global economy can hit escape velocity by then, meaning it can stand on its own two feet without um, without all the fiscal and monetary support. We can get to some form of normalization at a point in time. Uh, the, the volatility that we saw in the first quarter uh, was really just completely negated by a substantial improvement in financial markets and, and really risk inclination 
Uh, and as I said, economic activity hasn't really followed suit. Many economies continue to operate well below potential. And it's our expectation that economic growth is not going to achieve pre-crisis levels until maybe late 2021 or 2022. In the interim, all of the excess capacity created by the health crisis, rising geopolitical tensions, and the risk of a second wave of infection is going to continue to weigh on or could potentially weigh on markets. Um, thankfully, you know, it looks like we're turning a bit of a quarter a corner in the sense that global economic activity has increased and lockdown restrictions have eased, although they have been reinstated in some parts of the world. The improvement that we saw since uh, the Nader and, and the first quarter of 20 um, was re- can really be gauged through some real-time economic indicators. You can look at air pollution, restaurant bookings, public transit usage, mobility. All of those things have shot back up, but it looks like they've plateaued and, and to some extent they're leveling off. So um, that's 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 good news. And you know, when we when we look a little further out, uh, there's some evidence that leading economic indicators have also bottomed. As an example, you can look at uh, global economic surprise indices, which you know surged above zero. That indicates the positive data surprises are outnumbering negative ones. Or you can even see the rebound in global purchasing managers indices, which provide information about current and future business conditions. They look like they've stabilized, and they also remain supported by relatively easy financial conditions and that global stimulus. Now, to put this in context for you, because I've I've mentioned it a few times, the global stimulus currently approximates $30 trillion. This is a massive number. It's about 30% of global GDP. It's that combination of fiscal and monetary stimulus that's really made people feel better about the current state of the economy and allowed them to look through it and almost uh, right to 2021 and 2022. So to some extent, um, the, the, the fragility has been uh, discounted and almost neglected because we're assuming that we're going to get back to normal or back to a healthy state, pun intended, uh, sometime next year. Um, The central bank policy response has been coordinated, and this is very unprecedented. Many countries have employed a combination of conventional and unconventional policy tools to stabilize inflation and employment. We haven't seen that stabilization yet. But the unconventional policy measures include forward guidance that was recently introduced by the Bank of Canada and quantitative easing, which involves asset purchases to increase the supply of money, support liquidity, and encourage lending. The central bank policy rates are really important because they influence borrowing costs and the most highly correlated to short-term interest rates, but they obviously influence long-term interest rates as well. Um, so that, ha- that has a transmission mechanism that spills over into the availability of credit. It influences asset prices, currencies, uh, and those central bank policy rates are not expected to increase for several quarters. Um, central banks have said as much, and they said as much all over the world. Uh, negative interest rate policies, which is something that I, I think we're going to be able to avoid in Canada and the United States, uh, they were introduced as an example in Europe and Japan roughly five years ago. They equate to a tax on central bank deposits. So that's when the interest rate policies pushed into negative territory. They were intended to encourage lending and address the shortcomings of zero interest rate policies, which we have in Canada and the United States. So really, it's to demonstrate the resolve of central banks to manage deflationary risk. The benefits of negative interest rate policies are debatable, and there's little evidence to suggest they're going to get implemented in North America. 
Um, in our view, keeping interest rates at zero or slightly negative levels for a long period of time can certainly distort financial markets and contribute to asset bubbles. Most importantly, it delays the implementation of what we'd characterize as macroprudential policy reform to address structural imbalances that exist in the global economy. And there are a lot of structural imbalances. You know, one of the things that concerned us most prior to the pandemic was global excess indebtedness uh, and demographics. And those are trends that, you know, are going to be very, very difficult to reverse. Um, right now, it's the amount of slack and, and weak demand with the global economy that's that's really depressing interest rates, inflation, and wage growth. As we look forward, it's going to be excess debt and demographics uh, that also keep a lid on inflation and interest rates. Um, so, Think of this as short-term versus long-term. Short-term, interest rates and inflation should move back up as global economic growth normalizes. And it's you know our expectation that inflation could get back up to around 2%, which is what central banks target in Canada and the United States. But longer term, there are those anchors. So let's talk about those because demographically, we're going to be a little bit challenged. The number of people over the age of 65 is going to double during the next two decades. Um, aging populations will increase the median age of households. That affects changes in consumption and savings. There typically is a inverse relationship between the median age of households and interest rates all over the world. So as households get a little older, they spend less. Household consumption usually peaks between the ages of 45 to 55. Um, and then we also tend to see uh, the, the depression of interest rates as well. Um, that's a demographic factor. Uh, the, the sheer size of global indebtedness is also something that we need to be mi- mindful of. Think of a big mountain of debt sitting on top of the global economy. And time and time again, what we've noticed is that if any part of an economy, whether it's governments, households, or corporations, become too heavily indebted and they have a hard time servicing those debt obligations, we run into a problem economic growth slows down, and we end up in recession. Um, right now, we have printed a lot of money to try to get us out of this this health crisis and really fill the hole created by it. Uh, as we look forward, uh, government debt within G20 economies is going to increase by about 15% by the end of the year. So the mountain of debt just got bigger. And if you very simply think of it as, um, you know, that, that huge amount of debt as being a limiting factor, kind of a speed limit on interest rates. It stands to reason that interest rates can't go up that much without causing significant disrepair to the global economy and potentially pushing us into a, a, a a prolonged recession, assuming that interest rates rise and remain elevated for a period of time. So, you know, those are factors that are really going to limit interest rates and inflation. And the reason that we spend so much time talking about that is because interest rates are what we use to ascribe value to asset classes. So it's important to have a pretty good handle on how they are likely going to change over time. And even though we may see a bit of a short-term increase, um, the likelihood is that we're not going to see uh, interest rates and inflation go back up to levels that um, you know that were representative of of the averages during the past few decades. So we're going to be in this you know relatively low interest rate and inflation environment, which means we have to reassess uh, how we ascribe value to things like equities or even you know commercial or residential real estate bonds because we use those interest rates to discount cash flows. 
Um, you know, the, the good news is that maybe I painted a bit of a, of a draconian scenario there with respect to debt and demographics. But the good news here is that right now interest rates are so low that, it, you know, it's, it's unlikely we end up in a situation where um, any of those entities that I mentioned that comprise an economy, governments, households, corporations really struggle with debt service costs, uh, especially if, you know, the, the global economy starts to to do a little bit better uh, and corporate profits rebound and household incomes rise alongside of that. Um, so, you know, right now we're in this very low rate environment that that is really uh, allowing us to, to kind of skirt around some of the excess debt issues. And as we look forward, um, the likelihood is that all this excess indebtedness and these demographic headwinds really just take a little bit of output potential off of the economy, meaning that, uh, you know, we, the, the, the potential being, you know, what is indicative of, um, you know, how much we can produce when all of the available resources within the global economy are utilized. Well, those available resources are going to get stopped up a little bit by that excess indebtedness and some of the issues that will accrue as a result of the pandemic, whether it's changes in corporate or consumer behavior. So those are factors that we have to consider, um, specifically when we look at Canada. Uh, Canada is going to be subject to these same demographic forces, uh, same same debt issues, slightly different because we've got uh, excessively indebted households compared to other parts of the world, whereas an example in Europe, you've got heavily indebted sovereign entities in the U.S. Uh, now it's a heavily indebted government. Um, so Canada is subject to these same issues, but luckily we've welcomed immigrants into the country for several decades, so that helps offset uh, some of those those headwinds that we discussed, uh, and it tends to, to bolster growth a little bit. Um, when we also look at the domestic economy, uh, there's no question that it's been impacted by the health crisis. We see that uh, getting reflected in, in the decline in GDP, employment, interest rates, and inflation. Uh, that was all made worse by a near historic collapse in oil prices. The government of Canada has really stepped in uh, with aid packages to try to support small to medium-sized enterprises. Um, it's all in the Bank of Canada has done its part by reducing policy rates by 150 basis points uh, and initiating the QE programs that we discussed in addition to uh, forward guidance suggesting that those policy rates are going to remain unchanged for several quarters. Um, you know, Scotia Economics estimates that the Canadian economy is going to contract by about 7.5% this year and then expand by about 6.5% in 2021 as that economic activity gradually improves. And it looks like, you know, we are doing a little bit better. The major area of concern here is going to be that excess household indebtedness, uh, geopolitics, which I'll get to a little bit later, and the export-dependent nature of the Canadian economy, which relies pretty heavily on commodity prices. Well, those factors are likely going to weigh on the Canadian dollar a little bit, um, although it is expected to improve relative to the U.S. dollar in 2021. What we're seeing happen to the U.S. dollar right now is simply a function of, um, you know, the U.S., uh, you know, the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the United States, indicating that uh, they've got a very dovish stance, meaning that they don't expect uh, interest rates to move, policy rates to move for a significant amount of time. And in fact, we uh, we actually saw an announcement from them uh, not too long ago saying that they would be more than content to let inflation drift slightly above their 2% target before they touched interest rates. That's a, bit of, that's a bit of a departure in terms of monetary policy, and it makes them, on a relative basis, um, seem a little bit more accommodative than some of their peers, including Canada. And that, that tends to be one of the reasons that's one of the reasons that the U.S. dollars weakened somewhat. Uh, 
so you know that that's the the Canadian economy in a nutshell. Um, when we look more broadly, I, I reference geopolitical risk. There's no question that it's intensified. Uh, before we get to what's happened, what's going to happen or could happen with the U.S. election, uh, suffice it to say there's a, a huge emphasis on trade and all of these trade issues between um, not just the U.S. and China, but you know, U.S. and Canada and other parts of the world. Uh, specifically, U.S.-Sino relations have worsened during the past few months. They've become much more adversarial. Uh, there's a possibility when we look more broadly that global trade could become a lot more frictional, protectionist, and less multilateral, meaning that countries are going to consider bilateral trading agreements with large power centers like the U.S., like the EU, like China, as opposed to relying on multilateral trade. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that the WTO, which has been the appellant body for uh, adjudicating trade disputes, is not really functional anymore because uh, the U.S. has blocked the number of members required uh, to reach uh, any um, or really to adjudicate those trade issues. Uh, so in the interim, you know, we're in a situation where trade uh, looks like it's going to be pressured by, uh, you know, just rhetoric and tariffs. And in addition to that, uh, when we look forward just a few months now, um, you know, there, there's the looming U.S. election, which could have significant policy implications. It's much too early to tell who's going to win the U.S. election, although uh, the Democrats are certainly favored. They're leading in the polls. Uh, I, I keep getting the polls wrong. I, I didn't think Donald Trump was going to win the last election. So we'll, we'll wait to see what happens. But if the polls are correct and we do end up with the Democrats Taking the White House, uh, there's a possibility that they could sweep in the sense that, you know, they can control the House of Representatives and the Senate as well. And when one party uh, really sweeps, they have the ability to implement transformation policy reform. And some of the policies that the Democrats are talking about uh, really involve higher corporate taxes and higher personal taxes. Um, which could put a bit of a dent in terms of corporate profits and household incomes as we look forward. So uh, you see evidence of this volatility or concern about the outcome of the election when you look at uh, you know the volatility implied by options prices in the uh, specifically in the third quarter or sorry in the fourth quarter of the year uh, post election. So people are worried about it. It doesn't look like it's creeping into the market right now. But um, it is something that uh, that could contribute to that view, our view that that volatility might remain somewhat elevated as the year progresses. Um, you know, specifically, you know, when we consider these geopolitical risks and, and volatility and risk and everything else, um, you know, there's no question that uh, the market is shrugging a lot of that off because when you look at the performance of certain asset classes, they've just shot the moon, uh, especially relative to the first quarter of 2020. And I guess the case in point here would be, uh, you know, equities and what equity investors are anticipating. They're looking right through 2020 where, or, you know, the earnings this year are expected to decline by about you know, 15 to 20 percent most parts of the world. And next year, they're expected to rebound fully. Uh, improving by over 25%. So that suggests that corporate profits are going to fully recover. Those expectations may be a little bit too optimistic. And again, this is the difference between fundamentals and sentiment. Fundamentals are improving a little bit more gradually than you know financial markets, which are really being driven by uh, positive sentiment and risk inclination, meaning that people are just um, really looking at risky assets relative to safe assets 
and uh, and they're making a, a argument there that those risky assets should perform better as the economy uh, improves. But the magnitude of improvement remains to be determined, and if anything, there could be some downside to the estimates and uh, earnings expectations for next year. Really summing all this up, it just means that we have to be a lot more prudent and careful about what we put into portfolios. And I know that there are, um, you know, the market leadership has been somewhat narrow in the sense that it's been a handful of large mega cap companies that have really driven uh, equity indices higher. Uh, what we have to keep in mind is that those high quality companies uh, really offer something that some other companies don't, um, and that is predictability. So instead of thinking of, of it as growth versus you know cyclicals or defensives, really think of it as uh, companies that provide predictability should perform well amidst low interest rates and inflation. And that's generally what we're seeing in the market is that investors have gravitated toward uh, the companies where they have the highest confidence. Uh, meaning that they're either going to be supported by some form of secular growth or where there's just a lot of visibility that um, that really supports uh, the outlook for earnings, dividends, or cash flows. Um, with respect to fixed income, you know, we've also seen uh, a huge increase in, in risk um, risk appetite there. Credit spreads, which doubled in the first quarter, uh, meaning they blew out, uh, they doubled in the first quarter of 2020. Those credit spreads really reflect the premium that investors demand for holding corporate versus government bonds. They've narrowed substantially, and right now they're back in line with their historical averages. So investors here are just you know, looking through any potential credit downgrades or defaults that may result as a result of uh, you know, just the, the slowdown in the economy. And they're anticipating that for the most part, uh, these are going to be non-events from a long-term perspective. Um, you know, short-term, as I said, interest rates are likely going to remain lower. And we do think that longer-term interest rates will move up alongside inflation expectations as the economy rebounds, uh, but not move up a whole heck of a lot for the, uh, the reasons that we discussed. Uh, so, that's really the nutshell, and I guess um, the key conclusions are here that you know market volatility probably remains elevated. Please remember that volatility is a it's it's asymmetric, meaning you know volatility can remain elevated if markets go up or if markets go down. And as we look forward uh, through the remainder of this year and maybe even spilling over into the beginning of next year, um, there's a lot of geopolitical risk that uh, will likely a geopolitical risk and I would say economic uncertainty. Um, that'll likely keep that volatility elevated. Right now, I think investors are looking through a lot of these risks in 2020, which again, just uh, makes it that much more important to make sure that portfolios are diversified, which helps us reduce risk. Uh, most importantly, that diversification allows us to protect capital and take advantage of volatility as it manifests itself in financial markets, meaning that we can reallocate money and compound at a much higher rate from a long-term perspective. Um, so that's that's the nutshell, and I'm happy to, to kind of answer any questions that you may have. Great. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, that's a, uh, a really good review of, uh, of things. And we do have a couple of quick questions for you. You mentioned a, a couple of things that I think really tie together. The market's shrugging off bad news. It's trading a lot on sentiment versus fundamentals. Uh, I saw something here uh, uh, actually this morning. So Citigroup puts out, they have a market sentiment model that they use. And it's very simple. It just measures panic versus euphoria. And essentially, it indicates that we've gone from euphoria to panic back to euphoria within about two months. 
so the the question really is is have have we just swung back too far? You know, when you look at valuation, um, regardless of how you look at it, you're seeing you know Ford PE on on the S and P 500 at the 2000 bubble peak. So the concern really, uh, I think, amongst a lot of investors is that we've just swung back too far. We, we likely did. Um, you know, gentlemen don't use expletives, but, but we we probably did. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think very simply, you, know, you make money off a of stock uh, in two ways, right? You, you buy a company and it makes more money you should make more money as an investor. And in fact, you know, there's the, you could see this relationship. It exists in in the TSX and the S&P 500 and, and international indices, but equity market returns and corporate profit growth on an annualized basis go hand in hand over long periods of time. Um, you know, where we have a bit of a distortion now, so you've got that corporate profit growth. The other way that you make money is with multiple expansion, meaning that people are all of a sudden going to be willing to pay more for you know, a particular security that you own or an index. And that's what's happening today. We've seen a lot of multiple expansion. And if anything, corporate profits this year have deteriorated. Um, and, and, you know, people are hoping that they rebound substantially next year. So it's all been multiple expansion. And, and that's a, that's, that's what's going to normalize, right? It'll normalize one way or another, meaning that we will discern over time that the market multiple is a little bit too high, meaning that we've moved up too far too fast in the context of that expected earnings growth, or earnings estimates are too low, and they'll catch up to the market multiple. Now, we just went through a whole litany of risks. I'd argue that you know it's probably more likely that the market multiple comes in a little bit, um, especially for some of the high flyers that have really led this market. So uh, there's no question, you know, in our view that that sentiment is a little frothy and that investors need to be really selective when it comes to portfolio construction. Yeah. So just a follow up, um, is there value out there? There's certainly there's certainly value. It's just a matter of um, of not uh, not overpaying for it, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know one of the things I was, we were actually just working on this this morning, but we were updating our expected returns. So, you know one of the things that help helps us guide our asset allocation decisions or or recommendations is those expected returns. And when we look at equities, you know the expected return right now is is hovering around five and a half percent in Canada and the United States, and it's a little bit higher in international markets. Um, to give you a little bit of context, you know, when, when we devise these uh, expected returns, we, we do look at the trajectory, the, the long-term trajectory of earnings growth in, in the context of, you know, interest rates. And, and the, the thing that's propelling the market so much higher is this this expectation that interest rates are going to remain low for the foreseeable future. And we talked about how low interest rates, you know, significantly affect the fair value of assets. Um, so I think that's one of the things that, that that's really supporting this, this uh, surge that we've seen in, in multiples and in equity prices. Uh, in addition to the fact that, you know, we just said that interest rates are expected to remain low because of a whole bunch of other reasons like excess debt demographics, not to mention accommodative monetary policy short term. Um, so, you know, you don't really have another option where you can generate mid-single digit returns um, because, you know, 
returns in fixed income are pretty low. So you know, when we look for value in equities, it's really just making sure that you can find the companies that are going to predictably, predictably deliver a dividend, that those dividends, earnings, or cash flows that are going to make prudent capital allocation decisions compound their capital um, at pretty decent rates, and then ultimately the shareholders will get rewarded for that. So, you know, there there is value. It's not necessarily, you have to look for it, and it's not necessarily evident uh, when you look at the leadership in the market, because some of those names have certainly been stretched. Candy, a good segue to a couple of points you just mentioned, low interest rates, uh, obviously the pandemic, increased uh, uh, provision for credit losses. Um, what's your outlook for uh, the Canadian financials, specifically the banks? Yeah, so, you know, when I, when I was talking about uh, the methodology that we used for expected returns, you know, there's an interesting, uh, interesting thing that's really occurred over the course of the last, I would say, you know, a little bit over a decade, maybe about 15 years. You know, we've noticed that companies uh, in the U.S., so if you look at the S&P 500 or even the TSX, you know, companies for the most part, um, they allocate about 90 plus percent of their operating earnings to dividends or share buybacks. And then you got the remainder. Um, so, you know, when you look at the Canadian banks and you notice that the dividend payout ratio is 50 percent. And if you assume that we've been through, you know, that this year was, was unprecedented in many ways. Uh, but, you know, the, the impact that it's had on the Canadian economy has been pretty drastic. And the banks are still holding in just fine. The capital levels are still okay. The payout ratios are still you know, pretty decent. Assuming that we have, you know, this, this improvement in Canadian GDP growth, and that eventually some of the things that you mentioned, the non-performing loans and the provisions, um, that those things start to reverse course, then, you know, wholeheartedly, you know, these banks are going to be able to generate very good return for shareholders, especially if you consider that the narrative that really supported the banks for a long time, which is, you know, dividend growth and predictability, not to mention the fact that the whole financial services industry has become much more regulated and utility-like. Um, you know, I think that the banks are, are pretty good uh, in Canada in terms of, you know, being able to rely on that dividend growth, especially in a, in a very low interest rate environment. You know, it's tough to find. You, you can look through the S&P 500. You could look at other markets. It's tough to find companies that are that high quality that pay, you know, mid-single-digit dividends, not to mention the fact that, in, you know, when you start looking beyond Canada, uh, they become a lot less tax efficient. Um, so, you know, less concerned, uh, generally speaking, when we look at the banks, there's some idiosyncrasies that you have to be careful of, uh, depending on which banks you put in your portfolios. But, uh, you know, for sure, you, you were of the view that, uh, that they'll be just fine. Yeah, one thing that I, I've mentioned to Rob previously was, you know, the banks used to sort of participate in that flight to safety, right? You know, we see that um, when we see a market downturn is that flight to safety. We've seen it. This time around with precious metals, you know, you see it with the U.S. dollar. Uh, and I remember a time when the banks used to sort of fit into that category as well, and they don't seem to do that anymore. And I, I speculate that a lot of that had to do with sort of the fallout um, of the financial crisis in 08-09. I don't know if you have any perspective on that. Yeah, you know, I think part of it is also that we've mentioned this now a couple of times, sentiment versus fundamentals. And, 
you know, I first mentioned it in the context of the economy, where, you know, fundamentally the economy is not doing really well, but, um, you know, sentiments really propped up financial markets. It's the opposite for the banks. You know, I would say that the fundamentals for the banks are much better than what's being reflected in, in the multiples and sentiment, uh, especially if you consider that these are going to be really good earnings growth and dividend growth stories from a long-term perspective. I think what this tells you is that there are certain there are companies that operate within certain indices, uh, sorry, uh, industries or sectors, uh, where investors, uh, they've labeled them a show me story. So they're in the penalty box, to use the hockey analogy, where you're going to need to see, you know, the fundamentals improve. You're going to need to see, you know, the, the loan loss provisions, um, you know, decline or at least not rise anymore and, and the, the health of the consumer um, rebound and the Canadian economy do a little bit better in the absence of all of the stimulus. You know, I think this is really a call on, um, you know, what happens to the domestic economy, how stable it is, and then you probably get the multiple expansion alongside the earnings growth, which means that you can have some pretty good total return potential when you start looking at them. Um, you know, it, it's funny, you, you talk about post-0809, you know, in many respects, and, and you, you, you see this if you read, you know, the, the academic literature or, or some of the, the policy framework papers that regulators have put out, uh, but by, by almost everybody's admission, um, you know, the banks, for the most part, especially the larger banks, uh, that includes the Canadian banks globally, are, are much safer investments now than they were pre-financial crisis, um, meaning that uh, they're a lot less risky. So um, you, you would think that it's the opposite. You'd think that they would do a little bit better uh, when things like this happen. But in fact, they're just taking it on the chin because yeah. people are really worried about the economy. Yeah, so we're in Calgary, Andy, as you know, so it would be remiss if we didn't ask your opinion on energy, oil and gas. Obviously, huge collapse in prices, you know, governments forcing everyone to stay at home, not consume. We've seen the price recover. OPEC Plus, plus all of the companies in North America are cutting back and, and complying and reducing supply. What's the kind of the macro view on where we go from here on energy? So, you know, energy's uh it's a little bit of a harder one in the sense that, you know, when when oil prices were negative, um, you know, we we know when, when you look at the marginal cost of production. Uh, so, generally speaking, commodity prices should more or less over long periods of time track the marginal cost of producing that commodity. And when you look at the marginal cost of production for oil, you know, there's about 30 million barrels a day of production. Uh, to give you context, you know, assuming a normally balanced market, um, you know, you're looking at about 90 to 100 million barrels a day of demand and supply. Uh, there's about 30 million barrels a day of production that is just uneconomic, uh, below $45 a barrel. So, you know, when, when the prices went negative, we thought, okay, there has to be a supply response, whether it's OPEC plus or, you know, whether it was, uh, the shale producers in the United States that are, you know, sitting on substantial inventory of drilled and uncompleted wells. Uh, we knew that, that supply would have to come down to balance out demand. And for the most part, that, that's kind of happened. Um, when we look forward, it's still really hard to get optimistic that oil prices will really break through a 55 or $60 ceiling. And so you can almost think of, you know, that, that incremental shale oil production um, as really being the ceiling in the U.S. because the U.S. has become the swing producer for oil for, for, for you know, forever with Saudi Arabia. Now it's the United States. And then you could think of uh, those supply cuts as really being providing the floor. Um, 
you know, the, the floor that's going to support that marginal cost of production. So, you know, I'd say probably fair values between anywhere between 40 to, to $60. That's the range. I know that's a relatively wide range. Uh, but uh, that's a good way to think of it because there's a likelihood that, you know, we're not really going to see incremental spending in the oil patch. And for the most part, this is true with, with you know, capital spending in general, whether it's Canada or the United States, but we're really not going to see any incremental spending until we've got uh, a little bit more confidence that um, we have some kind of really two things, economic stability and policy clarity. And I think those two things need to happen before um, you start to see that incremental capex that really props up the Western Canadian economy, which for years, you know, benefited from above average wage growth, economic growth. Uh, and, and now we're struggling a little bit because of the decline that we've seen in commodity prices. So, um, you know, I think it'll take a while to get there, but uh, I think we'll, we'll creep up and hopefully producers have some semblance of discipline, which is going to be required to support those commodity prices. Perfect. I know you mentioned this earlier in your update, Andy, but obviously the U.S. election is two months away, um, could be a source of volatility. I've read a lot lately about this contested election, you know, people mailing in ballots if it's really close, potentially delaying the, the result as they go back and do recounts. The market doesn't like uncertainty. Do you see that as a big risk? Not just, I know you mentioned the talk about the Democratic sweep, but do you think this contested election uh, could? Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is what I meant when I said policy clarity. It's it's almost, you know, we, we can sift, you know, we can try to read the tea leaves and, and you know, triangulate what we think, uh, you know, a, a democratic sweep would mean, or, you know, uh, let's assume that some of the, the policy measures or policies that Democrats want to put in place um, get implemented and some don't. We could do that, but, but it's just the clarity because no company is really going to make capital allocation decisions in the absence of knowing things like, what's my corporate tax rate? What, what tariffs are we going to pay for? Are, are the goods that we use to, um, the, the cost of input that we use to manufacture goods? Where should we do business? Uh, you know, that, that policy clarity is absolutely important. So, you know, to some extent, I worry a little bit less about, um, you know, what the policies are going to look like, because I think that, you know, given just the the structure of the global economy and how large companies uh, have really gobbled up much more market share since the global economy became increasingly synchronized and integrated, um, I think they'll adapt. We think they'll adapt. Uh, It's really more about just giving companies the clarity that they need and the visibility that they need so they can make their capital allocation decisions uh, and just get on with it. So the contested election is a huge, huge risk in the sense that, you know, we could potentially delay that policy clarity, um, which which markets don't like. They don't like that uncertainty. Uh, and it's because it, it just limits the visibility of, of corporate profits and ultimately economic growth. Yeah, perfect. Lots of questions lately, too, about gold and silver. Obviously, I know you mentioned inflation earlier in your update. Gold and silver have had a huge run as well. Do you see that continuing on? Do you see that selling out? Kind of what's... Uh, your team's view on precious metals? So, you know, you can really make a solid argument for, um, you know, gold prices moving up fundamentally, right? And, you know, I talked a little bit about uh, demand supply fundamentals, marginal cost of production supporting gold price or supporting commodity prices. Um, so that that's all true. Uh, and the marginal cost of gold production has creeped much higher over the years. 
Uh, very little new supply has been brought onto the market because, you know, gold prices weren't all that high. Um, and it takes a long time to bring new supply onto the market. So, you know, right now, when you think of this, this huge move that we've seen in gold prices, uh, it, it has less to do with those demand supply fundamentals and more to do with people questioning the value of fiat currency. Um, you know, gold is a great way to hedge your bets against inflation. Uh, it's a good way to, you know, benefit from a weaker U.S. dollar. Uh, interest rates are low, so that means that the cost of carrying gold, um, you know, for many speculators and investors is, is now much lower. So, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons to support the increase that we've seen in gold. Uh, but at the same time, you know, and, and you know, we, we, when we look at our, our we make a recommendation about the asset mix, we, we kind of pointed to alternative investments as being part of a portfolio. At the, that, and that doesn't just mean, you know, your traditional, you know, liquid alternatives or hedge funds. That also included gold. Uh, because it is a great diversifier in a portfolio. It can help reduce overall volatility. It has clear diversification benefits, but there's a distinction that needs to be made between owning the commodity or owning producers. The producers have done better than the commodity. Um, that's really propelled the TSX higher, helped the TSX along. Uh, those producers have a tremendous amount of operational leverage. So this is where it becomes more of a, uh, you know, an, an asymmetric bet. On, uh, on whether or not the commodity price is going to sustain itself. You, you could potentially lose a lot of money in those producers versus, uh, you know, less money in gold. So really it just comes down to what do you, which, what kind of gold exposure would you want in a portfolio and what's the appropriate weight given the rest of, you know, how that portfolio looks, what, what else it's made up of. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Um, so, uh, some great insight there. And, uh, as I mentioned, really grateful that you could join us today. Uh, and and happy to make you an honorary gent. Very much, uh, very much honored. It's my pleasure. So uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks again, and hopefully we can uh, we can have you on again. Great. Yeah, appreciate it. Looking forward to it. All right, Andy. Thanks so much. Thank you. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, as always, if you have any follow up questions for ourselves, if you'd like us to ask Andy a question on your behalf, you can get our contact information off of our website ellisfinancialgroup.ca Of course, you can reach out to us on Twitter. You can find us on LinkedIn. Our Twitter is at ellisgroupyyc. So, as always, I am Stephen Ellis. And I am Robert Wolfson. And we are... A couple of gents. And we'll talk to you again soon.